thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're continuing our study of the book of Numbers, and we're going to be tackling chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Numbers, and um, my hope is that you've had uh, a chance to actually go over these two chapters, very rich and very, very powerful. In the context of the book of Numbers, we're right now in that process where the Israelites have finally left Sinai. In their direction, the destination is to go to the promised land. That's where they are right now. And um, these two chapters are a, a snapshot of what they go through during that travel. So in uh, tonight's uh, study, we're going to consider the following points. Chapter 11 is fundamentally a chapter of complaints. There are two complaints that we're going to study. The complaint at uh, Tabera, which is verses 1 through 3. The, the complaint at Kibbot Hatavel, which are essentially, which constitute the rest of the chapter, verses 4 through 35. And uh, then in chapter 12, we're going to address another kind of complaint by the family of Moses. So, all in all, those two chapters can be summed up into complaints. People complaining. So, that's what we're going to go through. But before I do, I do so, I'd like to um, send out a w- word of uh, warning for all of you who did fast and did a really good fast. Pushed yourselves beyond what would be expected these days. And that word of warning is beware of the whiplash. Because now that the fast is over, we run, we we are faced with the temptation of catching up. And if you were to try and catch up now on all the things that you missed during Lent, you're going to lose all that terrain you've gained. So beware, be on your guards. Be on your guards. And it is very appropriate that we talk about food uh, today because it's an important subject in chapter 11. Uh, If you've indeed read it, we're going to come back to it in a moment. So be on your guard, that means be sober as you address food or any of the other habits and be defensive. Know that you will 
go back to old habits very quickly unless you are on your guard. So you can protect what you've gained. Do not let the thief come in and steal what you have gained by your hard work. Right? So um, during the period of Easter, you don't have to fast. But it doesn't mean you have to eat all kinds of dessert and all kinds of sweet. And it doesn't mean that you can't continue to abstain from certain things as a form of penance. So keep up the good habits. Don't let it slip. Very well. So now we start with a complaint at Taberah. verses 1 through 3. It's very short, and let me read it to you. For those of you who have not had a chance to actually go through the chapter. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire abated. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. That is the first complaint. And you can see that in that complaint you have, if you will, the template for all the other complaints we're going to encounter. First, there is a complaint. And you'll see that in a little later in verses 4 through 5. You will see it in chapter 12, 1 through 2. We're going to see a little later tonight. But beyond, you'll see it in 14, verses 1 through 4, in 17, verses 6 through 7, in 20, verses 3 through 5, and in 21, verse 5. Complaints. The second piece is divine punishment. They complain. They trigger the covenantal curses. They're punished. 11.33, chapter 12, verse 9 through 10. 14, 20 through 37, 16, 32, 17, 11, 21, 7. You have to write all of those. We're going to go through all of them. It's the pattern that matters. And then they immortalize the incident by giving a name to the site. So 11, 34, 20, 13, 21, 3. And in Exodus 15, 23 and 17, 7. Now the same pattern is also evident in the stories of the judges. So in the arc of history, we go through Exodus numbers, that, leads, that gets them to the door of the Holy Land. Then, you, um, actually, uh, yeah, to the door of the Holy Land. Then they're led into the Holy Land by Joshua. After the death of Joshua, a number of judges are appointed. And therefore you have the book of Judges. In that particular book, let me read to you from the book of Judges, chapter 3, verse 7 through 11 where you see the exact same pattern repeating itself. And the, the current judge is Othniel, that's his name. And here's, this is how it goes. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hevites, who dwelt on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as the entrance of Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by Moses. So they were there to test Israel, to see if Israel will be faithful to the covenant. 
So the people of Israel dwelt among the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pesazite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, all those people whom the Lord expressly told them, you're not going to dwell among them. Okay? And what did they do? And they took their daughters to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Alright, so therefore they got an F. Alright? Uh, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgetting the Lord, their God, and serving the Baals and the Asheroth. Okay, so you can see how you dwell among the people, then you interact with the people, and you find them to be really nice, and kind, and gentle, and you like them, and they like you, and you get an interaction with them, and then pretty soon you're living like them, and they're doing what they're doing, and then, yeah. Okay. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and uh, he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. So what is then war? The, when, when an invader comes, it is a consequence of the sin, and it is a covenantal punishment uh, for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The key here is that in the case of chapter 11... Because of Moses, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They cried out to Moses. Moses interceded on their behalf. Right? Again, all of you talking to Protestant friends, point them to these passages. Why do we need saints? Okay? If Moses wasn't there, they'd be in a... in you know what. Right? Moses interceded on their behalf. The Lord relented. In the case of Othniel, who was a judge, but not of the stature of Moses, he had to go to war. In the case of Moses, he prays, Othniel has to wage war to free the people. Much more expensive. But the pattern is the same. So, Leaders of Israel effectively are doing what? They are defending Israel against who? They're defending Israel against the Lord. That's what they're doing. So you know the Catholic image, image of that many shun and many uh, make fun of us because of that image of our Lord extending His, his hand of judgment and his hand being held by Our Lady? Yeah, it has biblical roots. That's exactly what Our Lady... It's, it's almost as if Our, Lady's, Our Lady defends us against who? Her son. More so than the devil. Yeah? Intercession of the saints isn't a bonus. It's not an add-on that is kind of a nice-to-have. It is absolutely essential. And so if you are not sacrificing, 
back to the point I was making originally, if you're not sacrificing, if you're not offering sacrifices, you're not part of the intercession of the saints. So what are you? If we are not sacrificing, if we're not offering our sufferings, if we're not offering the frustrations that come to us every day, if we're not doing this, what are we? We're spiritual leeches. We're the parasites. We're the ones depending, dependent on others to do that on our behalf. Now, if you're, on a, if you're on a stretcher, if you are sick, if you are in pain, if you can't even think, it would be completely natural that one might say, you can't do this. But if you're healthy, if you're functional, if you can think, and you're not offering your day as a sacrifice, as an oblation for God, what are you doing? That, that is part of what you, we ought to do on a day-to-day basis if you really are serious about loving God. Because love of God and love of? Yeah. And there is no love of neighbor without sacrifice. We'll be kidding ourselves if we think we can love our neighbor without sacrifice. doesn't happen. So examine yourselves. Examine your conscience. How are you sacrificing? That's essential. Are you an intercessor? And if you're not, why not? It doesn't require a PhD. It just requires love. So, Moses' intercession is verbal, but it is militant. So watch how he speaks. But that's Moses. Um, actually, we'll see it a little later. Here we just see that he's prayed to the Lord and the fire obeyed. I mean, some, the power of his prayer. He just have to pray once and then bam, he gets the result. And you got to, if you, I'm, I'm hoping by, by the end of these two studies, book of Numbers and book of, of uh, Exodus Numbers, that you truly develop a devotion for Moses. You have to be devoted to Moses because he is amazing. Yeah, he's of the Old Testament. Yeah, we don't call him a saint, but he is absolutely amazing. And there is so much in his life that is like our own. So we can identify a lot with him. So we we have to have real devotion, real love for him and all the way he cared. Because he is the prototypical example of what? What is he the example of? What does he represent so clearly? Yes, but but um, more. Um, I'm thinking more of in terms of, of of a man. Pardon? Yes, the Holy Father. The Holy Father. The Holy Father. The Pope is patterned after Moses. So now the basis of the complaint is not stated, but. If we consider these verses as a continuation of what happened in 1029-36, the prior chapter, then the complaint is manifest. The people are objecting to what? Their living condition. Why? Because they're walking in the desert. They're not given a choice. It's not pleasant. And they're not liking it. That's it. They don't like what they're going through. Now, didn't, didn't the same people, same people were brought before Sinai and they said, everything the Lord will, we will do? Same people, same group? Didn't they say that? Okay. So, 
What is the root of their sin currently? What, what, what is the, 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 the fundamental weakness in their behavior? It's really simple. Pardon? Uh, memory is one way of saying it. I would simply say neglect. They've neglected to apply in their own lives on a day-to-day basis those things they said we will do. And now when the time came for them to, do, to take on a big step, they're simply not ready for it. So they complain. Let's understand this complaint a little bit better. They're complaining about the forced march and, and effectively in the Hebrew text uh, there is this con- connection with 10.29 because they reply to God's goodness with evil as we see it here. And if we compare the wanderings recounted in Exodus and Numbers we can shed further light. We can see that there is a parallel between the two. In Exodus 15, 22-26, there, there, there is a murmuring over water, which is then followed by three days' march from the sea, and precedes the manna-quail episode in chapter, 20, in chapter 16. Here, we have a three-day march from Sinai, and then it's going to, be precede, it's going to precede the manna-quail account in 11.434. So the same idea, they had to march three days straight, and they're complaining about it. So it could be that they're complaining about the length that it takes them to walk. It could be that they're complaining about the lack of water. They're complaining about something practical, about an inconvenience in their practical lives. That's what they're complaining about. Things are not going the way they want it. So what's wrong with complaining? Why is God so upset? Yes. You're not appreciating. That's one element. What else? Ah. Yeah. How is it lack of faith? Okay. Very good. But let's take it one step further. Let's say it's really, really hot. And they're really, really thirsty. What should they do? Ask the Lord for what they need. This is the whole difference in the attitude. God is not saying do not recognize what you're going through. He's not saying, um, you know, never talk or never say. He's saying, I am there in your midst. He's literally there because the, 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 the pillar is moving ahead of them. He's right there. What are they doing? Complain. Rethink your day. Remember what, also what Father Bivalakwa said in his, for those of you who are here during the retreat? Quit complaining. Be watchful. Complaining is not a minor thing. It's a major deal. When you complain about somebody, when you complain about your priest, about your husband, about the church, about your children, your friends, your job, the cars, the think carefully about what you're doing. Because more often than not, you're complaining alone. You're not in conversation with God. So you're shutting off God and venting. It's a fundamentally a, a minor act of atheism. 
It's a big deal. You've got to work on this complaint business. You've got to really work on it to uproot it from your soul. Can't let it stay there. That's very important. And so a very good way of fighting the complaint to follow the uh, counsel of St. Saint, uh, uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, uh, whenever you're plagued by a vice and you are about to practice that vice, force yourself to practice the opposite virtue. So, what counteracts complaints? Yeah, but what specifically? So, complaints is a form of ingratitude. That's what it is. It's a form of ingratitude. So, therefore, you counteract it with what? Thanksgiving. Acts of gratitude. Right? And remember... Acts of gratitude aren't just the automatic, automatic. You don't put yourself on autopilot. Thank you, Lord, because of this. And thank you, Lord, because of that. And you're still boiling inside. <laughs> All right? That serves no purpose. Right? You really have to stop. You're going to have to stop while you're in this thing. Ask your guardian angel to help you. And then in that moment, find one thing. One thing you genuinely can say thank you. And I can give you one you can genuinely say thank you about. Every time. No matter what. Irrefutably. You can thank the Lord that you have the opportunity to complain. That you can do. Because you know what? You've got to be rich to be able to do that. There are people who complain and get shot for it. You're not getting shot by anybody. You can at least do that, if nothing else. But then you can look at your hair, you can look at your fingers, you can look at your car, you can look at, uh, you can think of somebody you love, you at least have at least one person you love. And just say thank you. And if you can do that, you're stemming that power, that complaint has over you, and you can start to reverse it. That is work of mercy. Practice that. Now, they were complaining bitterly about their misfortunes. Their misfortunes. The Lord is in their midst. They're complaining about their misfortunes. The Lord is in their midst. Just think about that. Okay? And then what did they do? They complain in the ear of the Lord. Directly. They are effectively treating God as if God is their servant. The reaction, notice God's reaction. God does not speak back to them. He doesn't say, well, because you do this and then any other, I'm going to do this to you. There is no rational explanation that comes. God speaks to them through nature, by acts of nature. Fire comes down. God doesn't say, I'm sending this fire. He doesn't explain it. You notice that? He just does it. Because rational thought, rational exchange with God, happens only if you love God. If you are in His friendship. When you're not in His friendship, you revert back to a um, 
to the natural life and being in the um, being of a fallen nature, you're effectively reverting from the number seven, which is the number of the covenant, to the number six, which is the sixth day of creation where man and the animals were created. And in that regard, God speaks to you through natural event. Whereas when you are in His friendship, He illuminates your mind. So part of the punishment is also this withdrawal of God and the lack of illumination of the mind that happens because of that. So blindness follows. But because these people were people of the covenant and understood how God functioned, they immediately said, oh, well, of course, this is happening to us because we behave this way. We can't even say that today. We cannot even say that today. We're so blinded to the covenant that we are unable to recognize in the events of every day and in the events of the world and what happens out there, the actions of God. You know, an earthquake happens. Well, you know, it's Mother Nature. Um, how many of you have met Mother Nature? Raise your hand. Because I'd like to know how is she doing these days. What is Mother Nature? What are we talking about? There is no Mother Nature. There is the covenant. And there is the action of God every day in the world. But we've, so, we've been taken so much by the materialistic ideology that wants to reduce everything down to what we can measure and see that our mind rebels to the notion that God actually intervenes this way. Why? Because we would think that if God were to intervene this way that He would at least send us a postscriptum or a preface, or an email, or something. Okay, I'm doing this. See, I've done it. It's me. But that would defeat the purpose, wouldn't it now? Because part of the covenantal curse is the withdrawal of the truth, and leaving people in blindness. Because they want to withdraw from God, who is the truth. Therefore, He will not speak to them. It is very telling that in her apparition, 1968, in Egypt, Zaytun, Our Lady appeared... And everybody saw her. Everybody saw her, but she did not speak. She had no communication. The only communication that Our Lady does is with Catholics. And only with Catholics. Or those who would become Catholics right after. Like the story of that man I told you in the 18th century who was on his way to assassinate the Pope. He was a Jewish atheist and got to a point close to Rome, sat down to have lunch. He was bringing his children with him along the ride. And they went to play in the grotto and came back and said, Dad, there is a beautiful lady in there. He went in there. The Blessed Virgin Mary was there. She taught him catechism and he went to Rome uh, and converted. But that's it. And the Lord, likewise, he will not speak to you or to me or to the world intelligibly the way he does with Moses unless you are an intercessor. That's how it works. All right. Now, first complaint. What happens right after? We go through a second one. This one is worse. Verse 4 through 35. The craving of meat was previously voiced after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 16. And God sent them manna and quail. In this case... It is the quail that matters, because the manna is part of a, uh, the normal diet, if you will. 
Now, uh, notice how uh, scripture speaks. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So, what is the driving force behind this complaint? Love of food. Gluttony. Which is we're going to talk about. Gluttony. So, the, the rabble who are at the outskirts of the tent. Scripture called them the rabble. So, notice, Scripture is not always very nice, is it? Of calling people. Right? Neither what Jesus, by the way. An evil and corrupt generation asks for the sign. Okay? So, the intent here is that these are people who came with Israel, but they're not part of Israel per se. They just went along, and they're not part of the covenant, and they live at the outskirts of the tent. That's why, because they, they're not part of the tribes. They live at the outskirts. And they are now craving for nice food, and they get Israel to weep with them. So, beware who your company is. If amongst your friends you throw a party and you have friends who come over who are slanderer, who have no problem talking about others, who are drunkards, who uh, are um, boasting of the kind of sinful life they lead, and you allow them in your house, you are provoking God's anger. You're testing the Lord. Cut these friends away because they will drag you to hell with them. You can't tell me you live a holy life if you have friends such as these. Now, I am not talking about those of you who are committed to a ministry where you meet people, perhaps in a coffee shop or one-on-one, or you're working with them to help them out. And they are sincere about wanting to be helped. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you throw a party and you call these people your friends. You can't have these people as your friends and God as your friend. you got to choose between the two. You have to have good company. Why? Because you are exposing yourself to a near occasion of sin. You are... You are... Um, You're being boastful about your own strength. Therefore, you're also um, putting yourself in a danger of committing the sin of pride. Because you think you can resist. You can't do that. You have a friend, who's so-called friend, who's leading a sinful life. You confront him or her gently, meekly, with charity. You're not there to condemn them, to attack them. You're telling them where you stand and you tell them you either change and commit to change and I'll be there to help you or we part ways. So you, you can't say to the Lord, I love you and have bad company. doesn't work that way. We're being hypocrite if we think we can do that. So, so they had a strong craving, literally felt a gluttonous craving. That's how they felt towards food. If you feel, if you have these 
strong inclination, those inordinate inclination towards food, you have to work on it. You absolutely must work on it because it is gluttony. So let's address the issue of gluttony here according to St. Thomas Aquinas. I'm just going to go, go through a short paragraph of St. Thomas's teaching on gluttony. Gluttony denotes inordinate concupiscence in eating. Concupiscence is, in St. Thomas's language, everything that has to do with the senses, the concupiscence appetite, the, uh, the, uh, um, the uh, sensitive appetites fall under concupiscence, which is effectively the disorder of the senses. Right? So, it is inordinate concupiscence in eating. Now, he says, two things are to be considered in eating, namely, the food we eat and the eating thereof. So, in the process of eating, there are two things that happen. There's what you're eating and how you're eating it. Accordingly, the inordinate concupiscence may be considered in two ways. First, with regard to the food consumed, and thus, as regards the substance or species of food a man seeks, sumptuous, i.e. costly food, as regards its quality, he seeks food prepared too nicely, i.e. daintily, and as regards quantity, he exceeds by eating too much. So, one part of gluttony is people, and you're going to find that shocking, people who are inordinately concerned with the quality of their food who will only eat healthy food under all circumstances, who will put healthy food above the law of charity, where when they invite it somewhere and somebody proposes them a dish that is not necessarily healthy, they'll refuse it. That's gluttony. Now, it happens ordinarily if every time. That's a different story. But I'm talking, when you go somewhere and people put before you something, you can always take a small piece and say thank you. You don't have to take the whole thing, but... To completely refuse it, and hence um, uh, break the law of hospitality, is a form of gluttony. Isn't that interesting? Preparing food that is way too expensive. Therefore, without due regards to all the people living around us, is gluttony. Eating expensively is a form of gluttony. Did you understand that? Particularly on weddings. So many of our weddings are utterly sinful. We have weddings that exceed by far what kings had in times past. Our weddings should be nice. They should be a celebration of joy. But they should be sober and moderate in every way. I find it horrifying when parents expect their children to get in debt over a celebration. That is sinful. Do not, young people who are getting married, please do not fall into this trap. Resist the pressure. It is ungodly. And tell your parents, ask them, would Mary and Joseph have had such a wedding? And if the queen of the universe... And the greatest saint that ever lived would not have such a wedding. Who are you to have such a wedding? What are you celebrating? Be moderate and God will bless you. 
You want a blessing for your, for your wedding, not to kindle his anger. And the world is going to judge you? People will think you're too cheap? Look at them and say, Our Lady and St. Joseph were even cheaper. You're complaining with me? I'm just a sinner. Go complain with them. Choose your camp and choose it wisely. That's very important. So, anyhow, the quality of food, right? searching the best, the greatest, the tastiest, the this, the that, in the world we live in, is a form of gluttony. The quantity is also a form of gluttony. All right? Secondly, the inordinate concupiscence is considered as the consumption of food, either because one forestalls the proper time for eating. Eating outside of its proper time is gluttony. What does that mean? You're preparing a dinner, right? People are not there yet. What do you do? You're munching. Take a bit of this and a bit of that. I'm going to try this and I'll eat that. That's gluttony. I mean, think about what you're doing. You are giving in to your appetite. You're neither disciplining yourself nor considering that food is a gift of God for the good of the body, for sustenance. It's different than when you're preparing food and you have to taste. Right? You're tasting for the purpose of making sure that it tastes good. You're adding salt. You're not sure you added enough salt. Obviously, you have to taste. But that's not the same attitude as munching. Munching here and munching there and munching all over the place. I am not talking either about the need of eating five times a day. If that's how you eat, small, propor- small portions, because it's healthier for you to do so, and you're disciplined about it, that's fine. I'm not saying you should only eat, th- I'm not telling you eat three times a day. I'm not, neither does St. Thomas. But the point is, you know, eating at any point in time. You're, you're, you're in the office, you're walking by, you're not really hungry, somebody left a bunch of muffins, you grab one. That's gluttony. I mean, this should not come as a surprise if I were to replace food Notice, with sex. You would have no problem recognizing how awful this is when I replace food with sex. Either because at home you're imposing on your wife at any moment in time, middle of the day, schooling, whatever. Let's go have intercourse. Or at work, you're walking by and whatever, right? You you think this is crazy. But what is the difference between sex and food? They're both appetites. Serving different function, true, but they're appetites. Likewise with sleep. How would you like it if somebody went to bed and have naps throughout the whole day? Six or seven times. He's at work, he's sleeping, in the car, sleeping, and feels like sleeping now, just like... You understand? We're so riveted and attached to food that it's hard for us to even see gluttony. We think gluttony is when you eat three chickens whole. Now that's gluttonous. We only think of extremes... Right? Or you eat three tubs of ice cream. Now, of course, you're gluttonous. So we take what we think is normal for us, multiply it by three, and declare that gluttony. Therefore, whatever we're doing is not. Great. If we eat hastily, when we eat hastily, it is part of gluttony. Or when one fails to observe the due manner of eating by eating greedily. That's gluttony. Okay? Yeah. So here is the Mecca of gluttony. I don't usually call things by name, but I have stopped going to this place because 
it is spiritually um, disruptive. Which one I'm thinking of? Suplantation is the perfect example of gluttony. Suplantation. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that the owners of suplantation are uh, instilling gluttony in us and they are taking advantage. What they're doing is not sinful. I'm not saying this is a sinful business. Not at all. It's not. It's a great place in principle. The problem is that when we ourselves are subject to gluttony, then it's a great place to do it, and especially the children. It teaches the children to be completely gluttonous. And if we as parents accept, accept, and when our kids go there, they eat and leave stuff on the table and go get something else, eat a bit of it, leave it here and go. We are encouraging them in becoming gluttonous. All right? Now, gluttony is a capital vice. Notice, I'm not talking about a sin now, I'm talking about a vice. So gluttony is a moral sin. Okay? But it's also a capital vice. What's a capital vice? St. Thomas, a vice considered as final cause, i.e. as having a most desirable end from which other vices originate. So the fruit of gluttony as a vice are more vice. And what are these vices? Let me list them to you. And after I do that, tonight when you go home, I all want you to say a prayer of thanksgiving to God for St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay? Consequence of gluttony. There are five of them. First, as regards to reason, the keenness of reason is dulled by immoderate meat and drink. You can't think clearly when you are gluttonous. Your thinking is dulled. And in this respect, we reckon, as a consequence of gluttony, dullness of sense in the understanding on account of the way, essentially, food is going to disturb the functioning of your brain. Abstinence conduces to the penetrating power of wisdom, according to the book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 2, verse 3. I thought in my heart to withdraw my, my... a flesh from wine, that I might turn my mind in wisdom. So, you can't hope to grow in understanding if you are subject to gluttony. That's one. Two, unseemly joy. What's an unseemly joy? Is when you're rejoicing in something you're not supposed to rejoice in, and your manner of rejoicing is not acceptable. The manner in which you rejoice is too exuberant. So it is reckoned as a consequence because all the other inordinate passions are directed to joy or sorrow, as stated in the book of Ethic. Okay. Wine gives everyone a confident and joyful mind. 3 Ezra, um, he's quoting from the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 20, the third book of Ezra. Anyhow, it's the, effectively when you eat too much, what people get together, they have lunches and then and everybody's laughing and having a good time, which is great. It's not saying, you know, be uh, serious and mournful. But you have to be very careful with humor, in particular, because humor acts as an acid on morality. And so much vice can be introduced through humor, as you can see from TV. Okay? You have to be careful 
in humor and immoderation in food loosen the tongue. Right? The third consequence, and that's why we is is the um, as regards inordinate words, and thus we have locatiousness, l o q u a, l o q u a c i o u s c i o u s n e s s locatiousness, because as Saint Gregory says, unless gluttons were carried away by immoderate speech, that rich man who is stated to have feasted sumptuously every day, would not have been so tortured in his tongue. He's referring to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man ends in hell, and he's tortured in his tongue because of his locatiousness. He talked too much about things that don't matter. Fourth, as regards to inordinate action, and in this way we have scurrility, see S-C-U-R-R-I-L-I-T-E, L-I-T-Y, I'm sorry, scurrility. A kind of levity resulting from lack of reason, which is unable not only to brittle the speech, but also to restrain outside, outward behavior. Um, it is often the case when people sit down and have a great meal, good meal, a lot of food, more than they should eat, more than they should drink, they talk too much, and their behavior is loosened. That's scurrility. And oftentimes they'll behave in ways that they would not behave in had they not gone through all of this. So a good, um, a good, a good celebration, a good moment of joy must be graceful. Must be graceful. You should see what happens when gluttony becomes ingrained. When it, it's, a, it's a habit, it's a vicious habit, then you have, um, well actually let me finish with the fifth, fifth one because it's related, uncleanness. That is, and this is what I'm going to talk to you about, a kind of incontinence that has reference to lust. So gluttony leads to lust. Now how do you know that? Um, there are parties that are organized where... In all honesty, I cannot go because they are sinful. Uh, the women are dressed like prostitutes, literally. They don't even see it, but that's how they are dressed. The music is sinful. The speech and the conversation is sinful. And it lacks grace. And it is all centered around food. When a, you know, we make fun of parishes who are powered by bingo. But there are quite a few parishes who are powered by gluttony. Where the social events ride on gluttony and do not promote grace. Gluttony is one of those neglected sins. Seldom confessed, seldom recognized, and that have a very profound effect on us. Now, there is another part of gluttony that we have to recognize, which is part of this sort of, I will visit the sins of the parents on the children. What happens is that in families that become dysfunctional this way, emotional needs of the children are, are hardly satisfied, and the language of love is the language of what? 
food. Therefore, gluttony becomes ingrained because the only way that someone might feel emotionally satisfied is through eating. That's the eating disorder. What is an eating disorder? Gluttony. Right? It may be a sickness, but more often than not, it's actually sinful and requires prayers of deliverance because it is not recognized for what it is. It truly requires a spiritual prayer of deliverance and a movement away on our part from a gluttonous life where we are striving to free ourselves from that emotional dependency on food. God wishes for us to struggle mightily and then He answers our prayers. Because the suffering that is engendered when we recognize the sin, yet we are slave to it, but we recognize it's a sin and we are slave to it, that suffering that is born out of love is very dear to our Lord and has redemptive power in it. And God answers those prayers after a while. But He does. You've got to recognize what we're dealing with. That's Now, watch what happens. I'm going to show you now what happens in, in the case of gluttony. First of all, when they spoke of meat, by the way, remember, what do they have with them? The Israelites. A lot of it. They want meat? Plenty. So why are they complaining about meat? What they really are talking about? What is it they don't have with them? That's it. Fish, seafood. That's what they want. They want what they... So therefore, what are they really asking for? Beyond the gluttony itself. Bingo. Go back to Egypt. The good life. God is taking them to El Centro. They want to go back to La Jolla. That's what's going on. La Jolla is right there, ready for them. The Egyptians are all gone. They can go back, get the best view, live the great life. God is saying, nope, El Centro. There isn't much fish in El Centro. At least you can't fish it, as far as I know. Quails in El Centro, yeah. So, beyond the gluttony itself, there is a movement of rebellion against God's will. So there's these two things, right? All right. The regret of leaving Egypt is a constant motif of the wilderness rebellion. Here, however, a deeper level of meaning is struck. Egypt symbolizes materialism. Egypt symbolizes materialism. The craving for food produced of the earth in contrast to the manna, the heavenly grain produced of faith. What is the lesson to us? When you are prey to the sin of gluttony, your love of the Eucharist grows cold. You can't be a devotee of our Lord in the Eucharist and be a glutton at the same time. Okay, unless you're schizophrenic or something. Multiple personalities, I don't know. It's just impossible. The two are set against each other. Either you crave the, food, the heavenly food or you're going to crave the earthly food. Therefore, back to what I told you, beware of the whiplash. Do not let go, let your guards go down, because otherwise you'll be going back to Egypt. And it will take you two days and you'll be back in Egypt. Now is the time to be really on your guard. Be careful. Now notice, they said, we were in Egypt and we got all this for free, for nothing. Oh, not only do they want fish, 
they want it for nothing. So some of them, they didn't even want to slaughter their own cattle. They want it for nothing. To them, it's this whole trip to the Holy Land is a complete imposition. They never asked for it. They didn't want it. Oh, everything God said, we will do. Yeah, sure, no problem. Because the Egyptians were on our tail. No, the Egyptians are gone. Right? Why are we going over there? Let's go back to Egypt. The Lord is going to retake the whole story again in the parable of the, the, the sower. Hmm? Particularly in the grains that fall on good ground, grow, but the cares of the world choke their growth. Here you go. Here they go. They want to let go. They want to forego the promised land for a plate of fish. Okay. To me, fish always tastes like wet cardboard. There's something in my taste buds that just is not... I can't anything... I eat anything from the sea and it just tastes exactly the same. I don't understand why people eat it and what for. But that's me. It's not. Not at all. It's not sacrilegious. It's me. That's how I am. And so I can't really relate to people who love fish. But I know a lot of really good people who love fish. Therefore, I must conclude logically that fish tastes good. But there are other things that would attract me and are a, uh, could be a cause of temptation for me in food. Right? So you have to know yourself and, and defend yourself. So frequent visit to the Blessed Sacrament will help tremendously in overcoming all of this. All right. When this happens, Moses complains to God. Now listen to his complaint. This is how he speaks to God. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Every man, they're weeping. They're weeping for fish. You can tell how powerful the desire was for them. Hmm? Every man at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why hast thou dealt ill with thy servant? And why have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou dost lay the burden of all this people upon me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I bring them forth, that thou should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries the suckling child, to the land which thou dost swear to give their fathers? When... Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If thou wilt deal thus with me, kill me at once, if I find favor in thy sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So Moses doesn't think of himself as this great leader. Uh, he doesn't, he's not taken by the glory of it all. He sees himself as a wretched man. And it's a huge burden on his shoulders. It reminds me of John Paul II. Allegedly, he used to pray every night, Lord, this is your church and I'm going to bed. Okay? Yeah, it is a good one. Right? And um, now, honestly, obviously there is a lack of faith at this point in Moses. It's a low for him. Right? He only sees the burden, which is very heavy, but instead of putting his faith into the Lord... And asking to get him out of it, he essentially tells him, okay, I'm done. I'm, it's over. But see how, how human he is. So many of us can have that same situation. I'm done. It's over. Okay, that, that's it. God answers both prayers. He answers the prayer of Moses. He says, give me 70 and I will take some of your spirit and put them on them. And that's what he does. 70 come and they receive the power to prophesy, but the power to prophesy that they receive is only temporary. 
it is there to confirm that God has chosen them to help Moses. This power is not permanent. It isn't something that they get and they keep. It is only once that this happens. Meanwhile, in the, t- in the camp, Eldad and Medad, two who were not among the 70, receive also the same thing. Joshua, who is zealous for Moses, says, Oh, look, these two guys, they're also doing the same. Stop them. And Moses' answer was, Would to God that all the people would prophesy. He doesn't see himself as somebody who's, you know, hugging God's power. It's mine, I'm going to keep it. Would to God everybody would prophesy. That's the mark of a true saint. He's not there for his own glory. Think about that. This is not easy to say for many of us who secretly harbor a desire for glory, personal glory, personal recognition. And then, he, in verse 18, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in days uh, in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come forth out of Egypt? Now Moses said, The people among whom I am number six hundred thousand on foot, and thou hast said, I will give them meat, that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord, Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Observe, therefore, the conversation that Moses can have with God, which reminds us of the, reminds me of the story I told you about St. Teresa of Avila, right? Friends of God who are really intimate with him can speak their heart to him. But it's something that you gain. It is not a given. Yeah? Now, how does God punish them? What is the punishment? They get what they asked for. That's His wrath. They get what they asked for. Not what they needed. That's God's wrath. Always remember that. Alright. And then... So he causes wind and quails are fall outside the 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 the, the, uh, the, um, the camp. Oh, by the way, he told them to consecrate themselves. Why did he say that? Why are they supposed to consecrate themselves? Pardon? No, no. They're con- in that, this case, usually you consecrate yourself because you're going to be in presence of the Lord, or no, no. Because they're the sacrifice. They are the sacrifice. They are the sacrifice. In that case, that's what's going to happen. So, while, so they, um, and they spread them out for themselves around the camp. Verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth. Notice, they're eating raw meat. Literally, raw meat. While the meat was yet between their teeth, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. 
So not everybody died, not all those who wanted to eat meat died, only those who gave into their cravings immediately. Again, God doesn't speak, God doesn't say, because you've done this, I'm going to do that. The plague happens. To the modern materialistic American, oh well, you know, it's natural selection. It's mother nature. It's blindness upon blindness. That's what it is. So, the, this is a perfect example. You can go back and read this chapter carefully. you see how God behaves with us. What He did with them, He will do with us. No different. No different. Alright, a couple more words. Let's go through chapter uh, 12. I'll take five minutes. Because in chapter 12, the same thing happens. And you might think of it almost as a punishment for Moses. Because of the way he spoke to God and he showed lack of faith. God punished him in his family. His brother and sister now, emboldened by the fact that Eldad and Medad prophesied outside of Moses' authority, come forth and says, hey, is he the only prophet? We're also prophesying as well. We're prophets too. And they speak ill of Moses. Now Moses has shown lack of faith. It's true. Moses has shown weakness. That is true when he spoke to God. But they speak ill of him. And the, by the way, the pronoun in the Hebrew is feminine, indicating it was really Miriam who did that. And, and you would notice in the chapter, her name comes before Aaron to indicate that it is her who did that. There are other examples. For instance, in the book of Esther, even though the, the, um, the call to celebrate uh, pu- the Feast of Purim is uh, ascribed to Esther and Mordecai, the, 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 the pronoun is feminine to indicate that it was really Esther. So she gets the credit for it. She's the one who calls them to celebrate the, fe- the feast. right? So here it's really Miriam. Hence we, we understand why she gets punished. So they go before the tent and they complain to the Lord. I mean, they complain. Moses had, did not hear them complain. The Lord did. He calls all three of them before the tent. They don't enter. They're outside. Because she's, he's going to throw her into a leper and he, she's not going to... Um, make the tent unclean by leprosy, right? She cannot enter. And then she, he punishes her right, right there because she spoke ill of Moses, right? So please, be very careful when you speak, Ill, you speak ill of a priest, even if he's committing a wrong. Be very careful. Do not disrespect a priest, no matter what. Because when you disrespect a priest, you're saying... To Jesus, okay, uh, you made a mistake with this one. Or you don't know what you're doing. Or uh, he, you, you're, he's, he's not standing. When he's standing, you're there. No, no, you're not. He's just him. He's like anybody else. Be careful. You will not, I'm telling you, you will not have peace. You will have a spirit of anger in you, a spirit of frustration that will linger. And no matter what you try and do, you will not be able to get rid of it. Because you're disrespecting a priest. You must cultivate a spirit of meekness. You have a problem with a priest? No matter what the problem is, you can bring it with him meekly. If he listens to you, glorify God. If he doesn't listen to you, right? you're also allowed to take it to the bishop, especially if you think he's being disobedient in some way. You can do that. But please, do it discreetly, meekly. Do not publicize it. Do not make it known. 
And if the bishop does nothing, you've done your duty. Leave it to God. Offer sacrifice for that priest. Show him love. That's how we ought to behave. All right. So, again, the complaint. All they're doing is the complaining, and he give her leprosy. And it was for life. It was for life. That was it. Then Aaron asks Moses to intercede. Why? Because he lost the prophetic power. Right there and then, he lost it. God took it away from him. So he asks Moses to intercede. Moses intercedes, and God commutes the sentence for life into sentence for seven days. Yes? The prophetic power is to know God's will and communicate it to the people. It's effectively a uh, uh, divine guidance. So, for instance, when uh, Pope uh, Paul VI wrote um, Humanae Vitae, you go back today, go back and read Humanae Vitae, and you will be struck by the conclusions that he reached in 1968. When contraception will, be, will spread, disrespect for women will grow, you know, disorders will grow, divorce will grow. I mean, he lists a bunch of, I don't know if he lists divorce per se, but a bunch of things that he lists happen today. So you can see he had the wisdom and clarity to warn us of dangers. That is prophetic power. Who? Think about it. If you have a huge congregation who need help in daily living, who want God's guidance, if they only have one guy, right? So God then send them out. Um, he, he essentially uh, hits her with, um, with, um, with leprosy because what did she do actually? She complained that his wife was a Kushite. She's complaining that his wife was of a different ethnic background. It's essentially a racist comment. That's what she's complaining about. Oh, look, he's got this wife. She's not one of us. Now, I'll tell you right now, many, there are many Catholics who are Caucasian, or would fall under the Caucasian qualification, who would possibly disown their girl if she were to marry an African-American. It is unthinkable. Now, I'm telling you, if you know people who are in that category, you must warn them sternly that they are kindling God's anger against them when they behave this way. And there is no way they're going to enter heaven with that kind of hatred and racism in their hearts. No way. If their daughter finds a godly Catholic man who happens to be an African American, they should rejoice. And instead of seeing a man of color, they should see a godly man. They are not... Beloved by God when they act this way. Because that man is created in the image of Jesus Christ. And he is the son of Mary. And they're spitting in the face of Our Lady and slapping Our Lord when they behave this way. God will not show them kindness when they act this way. There is no basis for that kind of racism. None. You must work on this. You must ask God to help you. Our Lady to help you. Get rid of that kind of hatred. It is demonic. 
To hate somebody on account of his skin is of the devil because it is utterly irrational. It brings the dignity of the human being down. It rejects the salvation of God offered to all. It is no small thing. You must purify your intentions. That is essential. Yes, right. She's not part of them because his wife is a Midianite. So when Moses married a Midianite, remember the Midianites go back up the chain to uh, Esau or Isaac. We studied this back, but effectively they're not part of all the people they were forbidden to have any relation with. Right? So therefore there was no basis for her to complain about her. And uh, so... And so essentially, that was what she was complaining about. But really, she was riling, she was trying to rally the people with her against her brother. That's what she was trying to do. Because she's saying, is Moses the only prophet? It's jealousy and envy fueling her. And because of this, she demeans a woman who's done nothing wrong. If anything, that woman, Zipporah, saved Moses, if you recall. Right? When he was going down, she saved him because she circumcised the son. And there is not a word said about Zipporah where she behaved in an ungodly fashion. Nowhere. All right. That's the first marriage and only marriage. Now, because Cush is related to Ethiopia, some people think that she was an Ethiopian woman, but obviously... Uh, Zipporah was not. So there's a whole bunch of legends concocted around Moses marrying an Ethiopian. But I'm not going to go there. Uh, there is no basis for it in Scripture. Be it as it may, um, the objection was ethnic, and that's what matters. And so the Lord, the Lord heard it, but not Moses. He brings them over, Moses being humble and meek, and then they are summoned before the tent, and there he essentially lays it down to them, and he gives them he gives her the, the, um, the punishment. And he speaks of Moses by saying, My servant, Moses, takes care of my household. Words that applies to Peter. Alright? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.